Hello, and welcome to the Re-Re-Read podcast, where we talk about what contemporary writers like you and me can learn from classic literature. Today's topic is Moby Dick. Listen to the whooping imps of the Blocksburg, what beautiful music they make. I return this week to the Whiteness of the Whale chapter, which I love, but about which I don't have a whole heck of a lot to say. It falls into the strategy of verbal-slash-intellectual barrage, through which Ishmael-slash-Melville attempts to get the whale, and we've talked about that already. To summarize, the whiteness of the whale asks why white is the color, if it is indeed a color, of both holiness and terror. Seems to me the answer is that holiness and terror are closely related experiences, the whiteness of both points to and is derived from death. Done. Although, clearly Melville thinks it's not that simple, and death isn't that simple either, come to think of it. So, once again, by the end of this chapter, we are no closer to the whale, except in the sense that we have now read further in the text, and so we are closer to the part in the book where the thing itself is going to have to make an appearance. Still, there is some great writing in this chapter, as everywhere, and I don't condone skipping it. I was particularly struck by this line. Or, to choose a wholly unsubstantial instance, purely addressed to the fancy, why, in reading the old fairy tales of Central Europe, does the tall pale man of the heart's forests, whose changeless pallor unrestingly glides through the green of the groves, why is this phantom more terrible than all the whooping imps of the Blocksburg? A person who has, say, written a book in which Bigfoot appears might leap to point out that the tall pale man is a version of the wild man legends that seem to appear in almost every culture but I will forbear. My interest here, believe it or not, is in the sound of Melville's words. I remember reading Paradise Lost as an undergrad and much being made of the way Milton juxtaposed Latinate and Anglo-Saxon words, particularly when talking about Satan. For instance, high on a throne of royal state, which far outshone the wealth of Ormus and of Ind, or where the gorgeous east with richest hand showers on her king's barbaric pearl and gold, Satan exalted sat. The collision of exalted and sat is meant to mock Satan. The flatness of sat undercuts the grandiosity of exalted. As we all know, of course, this trick didn't work. Everybody likes Satan better than God in Paradise Lost, including, according to Blake, Milton himself. So back to the imps. I'm not equipped to pick apart the origins of the words Melville uses in the passage I've just read. Still, the sound of his words reminds me of Milton's collisions. The part of Melville's sentence devoted to the pale man is graceful and alliterative, glides through the green of the groves, plus those repeated R's. The second part, wherein the imps whoop, is choppy to the point of being funny. In this case, the smoothness of the pale man's movement, echoed by the words, becomes more ominous in contrast to the bumpiness of the words at the end. Compared to the pale man, the imps look and sound impotent. As ta Coates once said in an article on E.L. Doctorow, writers should try to assemble words in a beautiful fashion. He points to a passage from Doctorow's Ragtime to show how a great writer puts together word upon word, sentence upon sentence, to create music. Writers are composers. In music, it's often the contrast between sounds, the disruptions of a seemingly perfect rhythm, that make it compelling. So this week's lesson, an oldie but a goodie, is to listen to what we write, and that when we do so, we should strive not only to write, but to compose. <laughs>